you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Ruth chapter 3 today. Ruth chapter 3. There are times in a service, uh, just being the song leader and the preacher often, that I feel that, that we're kind of in a fatigued state. And maybe you're fooling me and maybe I'm getting a bad read, but I think there's like a fog of tiredness over everybody. And so we need to work out of that. Because if I can't be tired, and if I can't be lazy, and if I can't go just like this the whole time, neither can you. All right? I'm going to work hard. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach with energy, and we're going to follow the text, and we're going to apply it to our lives. And I want you to listen with energy. Because preaching, listen, it's two-way communication. All right? It's listening, and it's speaking and and I hope that you will do that today and fight any possible distraction purpose in your heart that you won't be a distraction all right and so we're going to just sit in our seats the whole time today because you'll be able to go to the bathroom at noon Lord willing all right and uh, we're going to say amen and follow along with God's word not because I deserve it never be fooled into thinking that but because this is the inerrant infallible inspired word of God we preach from today and it deserves our energy, our enthusiasm, and our attention. We've been in a series, From Hurt to Hope. If you're a guest, thank you for being here. We'll give you a little background here in just a few minutes to get you caught up. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. What are you asking God for right now in your life? I, I, want, I want you to think about what is the most urgent prayer request in your life today I know there's probably many on your prayer list but what is the biggest thing you're asking God to do for you today it it could have something to do with the spiritual condition of a family member maybe you're praying for God to save a lost family member maybe you're praying that God would bring your spouse to church with you maybe you're praying for a wayward child that needs to come back to the Lord maybe you're praying for your adult children, that maybe they'll let you bring your grandchildren to church with you. Maybe what you're praying for today has to do with the mending of a broken relationship. So so it could be that you're praying for an aging parent that you want to get right with before they pass. You're praying for a sibling sibling that you've been estranged from for years. You're, You're praying for your own marriage. It's just not where it needs to be. Maybe it's that you're praying for physical provision. You want God to provide for you financially for these medical bills that have piled up. You're praying for a more reliable vehicle. You're praying for a better job with better benefits for your family. Or maybe you're just praying that God would give you a few good days of health. Maybe what you're praying for is something you've been praying about a long time. Weeks. Months, for some of you, even years. And if you're honest, when you started along that prayer journey for that big thing you wanted from God and needed from God, you had so much hope, so much faith, but having not seen any results as a result of your prayer, you've, you've kind of lost a little bit of hope. I can remember that happening to me 2007 when my wife and I began to pray for a child and we prayed for three years that God would give us a child I started with so much faith and so much hope that God would answer that request and honestly I started with a lot of anticipation even with a prayer journal 
writing down every day the things that God would do. And I wanted to use it as this great testimony to others that struggle with infertility. But six months into it, no good news from the doctor and no results from heaven. I began to lose hope. But you know, every time that I began to lose hope, God in his good grace always sent just the right sermon, just the right song, just the right text message, just the right friend, just the right circumstance to infuse the hope back into my prayer. And this morning, I want this message to accomplish that purpose in your life. Meaning if you've been praying for something and along the way you've just kind of lost a little hope and faith in that prayer, I think Ruth 3 will serve to infuse that hope back into your prayer life and kind of give us a glimpse into what a hopeful petition looks like. That's what I'm calling, that's what the heading of chapter 3 is, hope in petition. Chapter 1 was hope in suffering. Chapter 2 was hope in provision. Chapter 3 is hope in petition. We understand that the story of Ruth started with a series of successive losses. Both Naomi and Ruth lost their husbands. Naomi got bitter about it, but Ruth embraced it, and she even exemplified what hope and suffering looked like. She, she, she clinged to Naomi's God, and even by faith, even though she was a foreign widow woman from Moab, a place God cursed, she went back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the tribe of Judah, the tribe of praise. But she knew in going back, watch here, that she would encounter two very big needs. She needed food and she needed a family. If you didn't have a husband in that day, you were disgraced. And if you didn't have a husband, it was really hard to get food. But God made way. We called it hope and provision. As he put her on the field of a man named Boaz. She had no idea who Boaz was at this point. All she knew is he's a nice guy who's wealthy. And Boaz gave her 30 to 50 pounds of barley. That is a lot more than even his own field workers got. That was enough to last her and Naomi an entire year. It was hope and provision. She brought it back to Naomi, and that's where we left off at the end of chapter 2. Naomi burst into a song of praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's provided our needs in a miraculous way. But there was a part of that interaction at the end of chapter 2 we didn't look at on purpose because it segues into chapter 3. And it was the question Naomi asked Ruth upon seeing her with handfuls of barley. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. It would be on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible today. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought. And she said, she's innocent. She has no idea who Boaz. She says, well, it's the man's name I, with whom I wrought today is, I think they said it's Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, verse 20, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now watch this detail. And Naomi said unto her, the man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Look up here. I could imagine the scene going like this. She, Ruth has walked several miles, so she's probably not carrying the bag of 30, 50 pound bag over her shoulder. She's probably dragging it into the door by now. And Naomi said, what honey hole did you run into? Who gave this to you? This is incredible. And Ruth said, his name was Boaz. And it rung a bell with Naomi. So, much, so she burst into a song. And I could just imagine Ruth singing, mom, mom, you look a little more happy than just someone that 
got the refrigerator full. What's going on? It's like there's more to this. And I can imagine Naomi saying, there's so much more to this than food. It's Boaz. I don't know why I didn't think about this before. I didn't know why I didn't scout out to see where Boaz's field was. But this is God because Boaz is our nearest relative. Now, you might be thinking, what is the big deal with that? Well, Elimelech died. That's Naomi's husband. Naomi's two sons died. That meant there was no, no male figure within her immediate family to carry on the family name or to, or to be able to hand down the fair family in, inheritance to. And in that day, this was huge. And Naomi was putting two and two together. Because that's where Boaz comes in. There was a custom of the day. Don't miss this. You're going to need it for the rest of the story. It allowed the nearest relative of a deceased man to marry the wife of the deceased and hopefully have a son to carry on the family name. Now that sounds all kinds of messed up in our society today, outside of the state of Arkansas, of course. <laughs> but but it, was every, it was an everyday occurrence in the Hebrew society. And, and Naomi's excited. Not because she just has food now, but because of who gave her the food. It was Boaz, and if he was that extravagant toward Ruth when it came to food, it meant that he wanted a little more than food, if you know what I'm saying. Because you didn't give a woman 30 to 50 pounds of food unless you thought she was real purdy. Unless you wanted a relationship. And it gave Naomi the hope she needed to believe. Our family name might continue. And so she tells Ruth at the end of chapter 2, you stay in his field. All right, you stay in his neighborhood. You do not leave his sight. You keep track of him until the end of barley harvest. In the meanwhile, Naomi's saying, I'm going to stay in my rocking chair in the house, and I'm going to plan and pray and scheme a way to get you two together. That's where chapter 3 begins. And Naomi has this plan. Can I summarize it before we start reading? She has this plan. You're going to wake up Boaz in the middle of the night, and you're going to propose to him. No, like the woman's going to ask the man. You're going to go to the foot of his bed, and you're going to do this weird thing that they called it uncovering his feet. I'll explain it in a moment. And then when you wake him up, you're going to ask him to marry you. That plan was risky. It was a huge petition, but it was a hopeful petition because they knew God was working. So with our time remaining, we're going to look at this, this marriage proposal. It's a great love story. We're going to see what it teaches us about our petitions to the Lord when we ask big things even risky things of him. Notice this, first of all, hopeful petition provokes holy risk. Write that down. Hopeful petition provokes holy risk. Look at verse number one on the screen or in your Bible. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, she's going to tell her her plan, watch. My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? That's not saying she wants her to get extra sleep. She wants to seek security for her by way of a husband that it may be well with thee. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. So you need to wash yourself, you need to get anointed, put your raiment on, and get down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking, because hungry men are moody men. You need to make sure he has a full belly, then he's happy. Timing's everything, ladies. Timing's everything with what you bring up to us. All right, don't talk to us when we're hungry. It's after we eat. No, no, that's just a marriage lesson. 
verse number four. And it shall be when he lieth down. Watch, thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie because you don't want to go to another man's bed. We need the right man here. There's only one Boaz. And thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she, look what Ruth did. She said unto her, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Consider the risk involved with this plan. Uh, Ruth risked her character being misrepresented. I mean, she was approaching Boaz alone in the night. I wonder what the other handmaidens would have thought when they saw her doing that. This is the owner of the field. She risked being misunderstood in her motives. She was a foreign widow woman. She would have been viewed as a beggar asking a rich man to marry her. We call them today gold diggers. She would have risked outright rejection as Boaz perhaps would have got offended at this. Embarrassed at this. So awkward that he said, no, no. No, 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 and, and you just need to leave entirely. So she could have risked not just Boaz saying no, but her missing out on the provision of his field. Saying, don't even come back. Yet despite the risk involved, Ruth did everything that Naomi told her to do. One of my favorite quotes when it comes to prayer is this. Pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. This is what Ruth and Naomi did. They understood their petition would eventually involve their action, even risky action. Now, listen, I don't believe we should ever take foolish risk and claim it as faith. I always tell people, don't put God on the hook for your stupidity. But at the same time, I don't believe we should sit on our hands either. I believe we should pray big things from God and then get up and do big things for God. What do you mean, Brother Tyler? Well, it might look like this. If, if you're praying for the salvation of a family member or a co-worker or a close friend, perhaps the holy risk that you need to take on Monday is finding a way to enter into a gospel conversation with them. Finding a way just to say something about church. Or maybe inviting that person to church or inviting them and their children to trunk or treat or maybe if you go out to eat with a lost family member who doesn't normally pray for their food maybe the risk you need to take is is say something like this do you mind if I pray over our meal typically people won't say no to that but it'll make a big statement it may be a little risky given the awkwardness that might incur or even the distancing of the relationship because of their resistance but it's a holy risk because God is concerned about the salvation of lost souls Maybe you're praying for a certain relationship in your life to be restored and, and maybe the risk that God is going to lead you to take is to be the first one to apologize. Or, or if not even the first one to apologize, maybe it needs to be the one that initiates the conversation to, for reconciliation. That's a risk because you know the family member that you're talking to or the coworker or friend you're talking to is notorious for sweeping things under the rug and just ignoring you and acting like nothing happened, but you know in your heart it can't be left undealt with. It's a holy risk, but one worth taking because God values the unity of his children. And he says, if it's at all possible, live peaceably with all men. Maybe your prayer is that God would help you get out of debt. That's a great prayer. Financial debt. Maybe the holy risk you're going to have to take involves a radical change of lifestyle. A cheap phone plan, a no-dish network, no eating out, no traveling the rest of the year. On top of all that, you're going to give an honest tithe. That's a risk because you know your spouse is going to struggle with some of those proposed changes. But it's a holy risk. One worth taking because God is all about the financial stewardship and biblical stewardship of our finances. 
Listen, hopeful petition doesn't just involve asking God for something big in your life. It involves doing something big in your life. Something that others will look upon and say, that is countercultural. That's risky. And that's where Ruth was. She, she, she was willing to take a risk, and she did. Look at the story in verse 6, 9. Let's watch how this turns out. Verse 6, sorry, 6 through 9. And she went down to the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly, that means just in stealth mode, and uncovered his feet, and laid her down. Now what does it mean he uncovered his feet? Because at first it looks like he's making sex, she's making sexual advances towards Boaz. It really has nothing to do with, with sex at all. We know that based on what the custom was, and we also know that based on the fact that later verses said she was a virtuous woman. Virtuous women don't do that. And so we know her character's not consistent with that being a sexual act, so what was it? Well, it, it was simply this. She would go to the foot of his bed, and while he was asleep, she would pull the covers up to about his knees without him knowing. And then in, in, in the Middle East, as it even does in our house sometimes, it gets colder at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And that coolness on his body would, would alert him, would wake him up, and he, he, he would go and pull the sheets back down. And while leaning over to pull the sheets back down, he would see the face of Ruth right there at the foot of his bed. It was just a technique to get his attention without startling the rest of the room. And so that's what she did. And look how Boaz responded, exactly how I would have responded. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. And turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, who art thou? I think he knew who Ruth was. I think that's his way of saying, what in the world are you doing? You've had, my, I have an eight-year-old that wakes us up often during the midst of a storm, or if he wants water, or whatever, has a nightmare. And there's sometimes you wake up, and the kid is this close to your face. I know who he is, but I'm saying, what in the world are you doing? Boaz was startled, maybe even a little bit afraid. And, and here's, here's what happens next. Ruth answered him with the marriage proposal, brilliantly worded. I am Ruth thine handmaid. Spread therefore, this is not a sexual connotation, I'll explain it. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. For thou art a near kinsman. Now, now catch this. Ruth is intentionally using the similar words that Boaz used towards her in chapter 2, verse 12. When he said that you have come under the wings of God. And who shall trust? And, and so here's what Ruth is doing. She, she, she's intentionally challenging him to translate his own words into action by not only being the means through which God gave her food, but now also being the means through which God gave her her family. He's, she's saying this, Boaz, just like I sheltered myself under God's wings for physical provision, I want to shelter myself under your wings for family provision the rest of my life. Will you marry me? He knew it was a marriage proposal because she said, thou art a near kinsman. But it was risky. Would Boaz reject her? Would he turn her away because it's just awkward and uncomfortable and embarrassing? No, 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 no. It was very, very interesting to find that he was into this idea. But he knew there was just one problem with this whole scenario, which brings up the next point. Hopeful petition often encounters big barriers. Look at verse number 10. And he said, blessed be thou the Lord my daughter, 
For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, and as much as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, you could have chosen anybody, you chose me. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true, watch, that I am thy near kinsman. Then we get to the barrier. How be it? But there's a kinsman nearer than I. He, he basically says, I would love to marry you, Ruth. But there's another guy who's actually a nearer kinsman than me. I'm going to have to check with him first. And I just want to shake Boaz and say, dude, that's anticlimactic. You're a momentum killer. Why do you got to be so honest? I would often have some Boazes on my team in basketball, in a pickup game of basketball, five on five. And somebody would shout out, Prater, what's the score? And I didn't know, so I'd make one up, and we were always winning. It's seven to five. We're up by two, and some seventh grader pushed up his rec specs and said, well, actually, that guy two possessions ago shot a three-pointer and made it, so it's actually tied seven to seven. And I would shake the kid and say, go sit on the bench. You don't have to be honest. <laughs> and I want to do the same thing with Boaz. Well, actually, Ruth, um, there's an error. Oh, shut up, Boaz. Come on, man. But he was a man of integrity. And he was right. The more closely related kinsmen had the right to accept the responsibility of Elimelech's estate and then the duty to raise an heir. So imagine for a moment, church, how this might have caused Ruth to feel. She expected to get engaged, but now her future was completely at the mercy of a relative. She didn't even know. It makes me think of Proverbs 13, 12 that says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. In other words, when you have your hopes up and then they're not fulfilled, it just makes your heart hurt. It just takes all the energy out of you. So the plan to marry Boaz had encountered an unforeseen, unexpected, big barrier. And that's what happens so often when we ask for big things from God. You start praying for your loved one. You start praying for your close friend or co-worker to get saved. And then you take the holy risk. And you just bring up church or God lightly in a conversation. And it's like the moment you do, it's met with resistance. Sometimes aggressive resistance, sometimes just passive resistance by ignoring you and distancing themselves from you. And as you see that take place, it's like you think, I just had taken two steps backward. I was convinced I was supposed to speak up. I was convinced I was supposed to say God or church or pray before my meal or invite them to church. But now they're never going to get saved. Barrier. You pray for God to help you get out of debt, so you make the changes you need to make, and you start giving to the Lord. You get rid of this network and Netflix and Hulu, Hulu and about to be Disney Plus and Apple TV, and you even sell your TVs. But you got to take your kid to the dentist. You've had this appointment for six months because it takes that long to get a new dentist around here. You go and expecting just a standard thing. You brush his teeth. You take care of his teeth. But they take x-rays and find out that you've got hundreds of dollars worth of work to do on your son's teeth that you brush every day. You wanted to get ahead and now you have an unexpected setback. You initiate the much needed conversation in order to reconcile that broken relationship with your spouse or your children or your boss or your fellow church members. Yet your humble apology and effort to help the relationship is met with defensiveness and anger and pride and they even question your sincerity you were convinced you did the right thing 
But now you're led to believe that God will never restore that relationship. Barriers. Hey, barriers are very real when it comes to what we're asking of God in our life. But, but, but here's what's amazing about God, is that even in the midst of the barriers, he often sends us a gracious reassurance that we're doing the right thing. Even when the barrier tells us we're doing the wrong thing. And, and that's what he did for Ruth. Because here's what happened. Boaz didn't just make a promise, I'll do the best I can to redeem you. No, he also did something to follow that up as a way to reassure her that he was serious. I want you to look at it. Verse number 14. Hopeful petition is accompanied by divine reassurance. I love this. And she lay at his feet until the morning. And she rose up before one could know another. And he said, let it, I could, he's whispering to her, right? Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. I don't, I don't want anybody to know this happened. Also, he said, bring the veil. Bring the veil that you were wearing the other day. Bring that that thou hast upon thee. Hold it. Spread it out. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. She went back home. What's the veil? What, what is that? That was an outer garment. It was a shawl. Most working women would commonly wear that to hold their baby while they were working in the field. But Boaz used it to fill her up with barley. Enough barley that it would have been overflowing, falling out of the shawl as she was going back home. So, so catch this. Don't miss this. That the filling of the garment by Boaz was more than simply a convenient way of giving Ruth grain. It, it was also a sign of the promise he's made to redeem her, redeem her because here's what it does. It foreshadows the child that Boaz intends to give Ruth. So, no, picture this. He, he says, I want that shawl that, that, that normally women use to hold their babies. I'm going to put grain in it as a way to reassure you that it won't always be grain. I have every intention to put a baby in that shawl. Half of you are asleep. Is that not exciting to you at all? Or do you not understand it? It signifies, Ruth, I know that, 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 that this delay, this barrier, it's going to discourage you. It has potential to think that I'm not working and I'm not serious. I'm going to be like just any other man that tells you I'm going to do something but lets you down and disappoints you. So I'm going to give you a gracious reassurance, a, a symbol of, my, of, of my, my dedication to make this thing happen if God wills. Give me your shawl. I'm filling it up with grain. But one day I'm going to fill it up with a real life screaming, crying baby boy. Yeah. And God does the same thing for us. Along the way in our prayer journey, especially when we counter an unexpected barrier that makes us feel like we're doing the wrong thing sometimes. Just two weeks ago, I sat down with a church member. We were eating lunch. And he told me that at his job, he relies heavily on commission work. And he said that, that for the last few weeks or, or months, I can't remember which one, he said it has been the slowest at work that it's been since he's been there. He said he was that close to going and getting a, a, another job that didn't rely as much on commission just so he could have at least a steady paycheck. But he, he said, I'm convinced God wants me there because he's right in the midst of some gospel conversations with some of his coworkers. And he said, I just decided I'm going to pray. So I said, well, that's a clever idea. Clever. That should be the first thing we do, by the way. But I'm just like that church member. Sometimes it's the last thing I do. And he said he prayed. And it wasn't but a few days later that this rush hit the shop. 
And he, he caught me Wednesday night after pastor's message. I was coming in for choir practice. And he said, you'll never believe this, but the last two weeks we have broke a record for the commission work that I've done. God's gracious reassurance. You're at the right spot. You're doing the right thing. I'm still working. Talked to another church member about a month and a half ago. And they're having difficulties in a family relationship, a, a, a strained family relationship that's been strained for a long time and just doesn't seem to get better. Sometimes it does, but then it dips right back down. It's, it, it's a personality clash. It's, it, it's, it's a very, very tough relationship. And they were at the verge of giving up on that relationship. And ran, randomly, they got a text from a friend that said, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I know what you're going through relationally. And I just want you to know from the outside, you handle it with so much grace. And that's all that, according to their testimony, that's all that person needed to take the next step on the path of restoration and reconciliation. What was it? It was God whispering to them, live peaceably with all men. I know it's hard, but I'm with you. And sometimes God will use a sermon as reassurance. And sometimes God will use a song as reassurance. Sometimes God will use a text message as reassurance. Sometimes God will give you, sprinkle a little extra provision at work as a way of saying, I'm still involved in this. I'm taking good care of you. I'm a God of my word. So now Ruth's on her way home. She's got a lot of barley, six measures. It's falling out the sides. I can imagine that Naomi's in a rocking chair. She's waiting for Ruth to, give home, to get home and give her the good news of her engagement. She's ready to take Ruth to the bridal shop. She's ready to plan the wedding. But Ruth takes, comes in and there's no ring. There's a sack of barley. Look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, these six measures of barley gave he me. Watch this here. For he said to me, go not empty under thy mother-in-law. You got to get this observation. We're tying in things from the past again. Boaz is, is carefully using his words. And he says, Ruth, when you take this barley back to your mother-in-law, it doesn't just signify that I'm going to put a baby in that shawl. It signifies that she's no longer going to be empty. This is the Naomi that at the end of chapter 1 said, I'm empty. I have nothing. God has emptied me of my husband and my sons and my peace and my joy and my future. And Boaz says, you take that home to your mom-in-law and you tell her God has not left her. And that's all the hope that Naomi needed. She knew exactly what that meant. We might not have the husband now. He's coming though. We're not going to be empty forever. And that brings us to our last point. Hopeful petition requires waiting on God. Verse 18. She had so much hope that she had patience. She said, sit still, my daughter. Sit still until I know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day look up here please they they realize at this point the situation was out of their control 
It was completely in the hands of Boaz, so they trusted God to work out the details, and they resolved to sit still until he did. Hear me that there are times when, when you've prayed all you can pray. You've taken holy risk. But at some point, you are simply going to have to sit still and wait on God. Are you hearing me? That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalms 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. You can't manipulate anymore. You can't scheme anymore. You've prayed for days and months and years. God has given you gracious reassurance. You've even taken holy risk and everything has been laid out. Now it's time for God to do what he does best. There's going to come a time when you've got to stop asking, how am I going to work this out? And you've got to start trusting that God will work it out. You've got to take your hand off the controls. You've got to stop scheming. You've got to stop trying to barricade through doors. And sometimes you've just got to wait. And maybe that's where you're at today. You're at the end of chapter 3. You prayed taking a holy risk God has whispered gentle reassurance along the way but you're sitting still that's a good place to be by the way because the latter part of Psalms 4610 implies that as we are being still and letting God be God he is being exalted among the heathen in other words there's a, a, a certain amount of glory and exaltation that God can only get in the heathen's eyes as we wait on him to be God. Practically speaking, it means that when we take our hand off the controls and even lost people realize that was God and we can't take credit for it, that may be where God has you right now. Sitting still so that your coworker can, can, can look at what God does, not you. Sitting still so that broken relationship can see what God does, not you. Maybe that's where God has you. And it is awesome, isn't it, when God comes through? Uh, we'll read that next week. Don't get ahead. Now, some of you read Ruth 3. I had three people this morning say, I read Ruth 3 already. I'm glad you did. Read, go ahead and read Ruth 4. All right? If, 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 if you like spoilers and all that, you go ahead and read Ruth 4. All right? It's all over the Internet. It'll tell you how it ends. We're going to talk, in fact, I'm going to preach it next week, how it ends, and, and God comes through in an amazing way. And I, I've seen that in our church. I have. There, there are two families I'm thinking of right now that have adopted kids in our church. Uh, Justin and Janine Varnes adopted little Emmy, and Wesley and Kara Payton are adopting little Jamie. And, and these were kids that had less than fortunate home lives. And they brought them out of that. And I can remember Justin and Janine so convinced that this is what God wanted them to do. And so they got into it, and it was like a roller coaster ride. And we'd pray for them, and they would pray, and they would take a holy risk, and they would, they would go to court, they would take initiative, do everything they could do, and then get let down. They would get told yes, and they get told no. The same thing has happened with Wesley and Kara. It, isn't it crazy that, that it's easier to abort a child than adopt one? It's crazy. 
But that's how it is. And yet I've seen them persevere with hope and with faith. And now every single Sunday, little Emmy comes in with Justin and Janine Barnes. And little Jane, we're about to celebrate on the 19th of this month. She's about to get the last name Peyton. But there's a moment where they had to pray big, take a holy risk, be reassured by God, and sit still. And I don't know what your circumstance is, but you can have hope. I'm done, but we were praying for our meal. Um, I think it was Thursday night. And I had Kevin pray. And I've caught this before, but in light of this message, it really spoke to me. He, he prays like this. Every phrase begins with hope. Hope we have a good day tomorrow. Hope I get my food. Hope the food nourishes our body. Hope I get my work done tomorrow. Hope Kelby plays good. Hope you help Huck and Leroy. Hope you be a papa. Grammy. And it dawned on me, he's got it right. I, don't, I never heard a, an adult pray like that. That's kid language. But that's childlike faith. Because doesn't Hebrews 11 say something like this, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. My little eight-year-old's hoping these things happen. And he didn't know all the theological verbiage he's just praying from a sincere heart but maybe you need to go home and or maybe you need to come to the altar and maybe you need to start your prayer this way god i hope i hope you'll save this person i hope you'll bring this wayward child home god i hope you'll provide this need god i hope you'll give me better health god i've lost hope give me hope back again because boaz is just a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ and if you think his he was generous and he was incredible and he came through just wait till you get in your prayer closet and talk to the king of kings and the lord of lords who can do way more than Boaz could ever do for you stand to your feet every head bowed